Uh, blessings to you. Great to be here. Uh, we're going to be in Romans again. We're going to be finishing this section, uh, chapters 9 through 11, uh, on what God's plans are for Israel. And today's message is called, All Israel Will Be Saved. So uh, before we dive in, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you so much for the ability to study your word. We thank you for uh, just so many blessings, even uh, even in the days of COVID, Lord, that, that you have shown us your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord. And, and as we come to your word this morning, Lord, I pray that we see clearly uh, your grace and mercy, even in uh, your plans for Israel and for the Gentiles through Israel. And then again, Israel from the Gentiles. Uh, Lord, let make this plain to us. And Lord, I pray that we love our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, and, and empathize for them even more uh, through the preaching of your word. Lord, we just praise your name. We glorify the name of the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you've all heard the phrase, God works in mysterious ways, and, and that is most certainly true. Uh, we would all agree with that. Uh, and I was really struck by that uh, when we had our missionary Sunday uh, a couple months ago. Uh, I hope you all remember that. Um, I just thought, you know, COVID-19 has changed the world in so many ways, and, and obviously most of them bad. Uh, but it's amazing how much good uh, God has managed to work, even through uh, COVID. Uh, remember, uh, Rick Rude told us, uh, he's our, our missionary who, who does a hospital chaplaincy, uh, and he told us uh, on his video uh, that he's no longer able to do a hospital chaplaincy anymore because the, the hospitals are closed to him, so he's not able to get in. Uh, so what did he do in the meantime? Well, he finished two books that he had been working on. Uh, one of them was his memoir of his life as a chaplain, so recording you know, 30 or so years as a hospital chaplain and some of the highlights of that. And then he wrote a second book, which was actually his uh, completing his doctoral dissertation from like 40 years ago about uh, what about those who have never heard. Uh, and so uh, just an amazing blessing uh, that, that Rick had the time to do that. He would never have been able to finish those two books if he was doing full-time hospital chaplaincy. Uh, and uh, those two books uh, have been and will be an enormous blessing to so many people that Rick will never see face-to-face. -face. That's what his books will be able to do. Uh, and so God has worked in Rick's life and, and through many others uh, through uh, that ministry. Uh, Don Anderson, you remember, told us about his prison ministry and how uh, he was making great inroads in the prisons and he was going in and having one-on-one -on -one discipleship with, with uh, some of these inmates and making converts and making disciples. And then when COVID hit, uh, prisons were shut down. Uh, he couldn't get in anymore. Uh, but incredibly, Don had these two books that he had written as well, uh, one about who is Jesus and another book about what does it mean to be a Christian disciple. And so with uh, in-prison ministry shut down, he started to send out these books uh, to the local prisons. And, and other prisons heard about this, and they said, well, we want to get our hands on these books too. And now Don has a book ministry uh, where he's reaching thousands of inmates across the country, people that he would never have gotten to meet face-to-face -face, uh, because uh, God opened up another door even in the face of COVID. And so... Uh, 
what we see is that uh, both Rick and Don, they had a ministry. Uh, that ministry was interrupted so that they could have another ministry. And now they're going to have two ministries. They're going to have the book ministry and they're going to have this ministry in person. So God does work in mysterious ways. He takes what is bad and he makes beauty out of it. He makes a good even out of tragedy, uh, even COVID. Uh, and as, we, as we've been talking about for the past uh, several weeks now, as we talk about the, uh, what's going to happen with Israel, uh, we see that this is a tragedy as well. Uh, Israel currently, by and large, does not believe. They have rejected the gospel, and yet God is doing something amazing through it. And he has over the centuries, as millions and millions of Gentiles have come to believe in the gospel. Uh, and this is what Paul has been explaining throughout chapters 9 through 11. Uh, God's rejection of Israel and Israel's rejection of the gospel. It, it seems impossible, right? Because Israel is God's chosen people. How could they reject the gospel? But they have uh, for a time. And, and God has rejected them for a time and turned them aside for a time But because God has a plan. And he's got a plan to save the Gentiles. Uh, it's difficult. It really is, when you think about it, to think that, that God has turned away from Israel for a time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that individual Jews can't be saved and aren't being saved because they are. Uh, it's a tragedy when anybody doesn't believe the gospel, whether Jew or Gentile, because we know that they are both eternally lost. So it's very difficult to think about what we're going to talk about today, uh, God's hardening, his partial hardening of Israel, which is a concept that we've talked about uh, before uh, during these chapters about how God hardens some and softens others. Uh, God is sovereign. We have to recognize that. He chooses who are his. And at the same time, uh, we are responsible for our decisions, whether Gentile or Jew. We're responsible for our decision if we don't believe. And still, God is going to turn Israel's tragedy into triumph someday. And Paul called this a mystery in our passage today. God has called, caused a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. So let's talk first about God's partial hardening of Israel. Uh, we see it in verses 25 to 27. Uh, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, God partially hardened Israel. Uh, that's the first thing we see. And the, the, what we're, what we're going to see first is that this hardening is mysterious. Uh, God's hardening is mysterious. Uh, Paul said, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that's hard to understand in the Bible. That's not what mystery means. A mystery means something that God has not yet revealed up until uh, the present time. Uh, so, in fact, revelation might be a, a synonym. A God reveals something new to us. That's how Paul uses the word. Uh, and Paul references some 
of God's mysteries uh, throughout the New Testament. In fact, I think he uses this word something like 11, 12 different times. Uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul wrote about Christ himself, uh, saying that God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote of the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul used the analogy, remember, of Christ uh, when he talked about a, a man's a marriage to, his, uh, to her husband uh, being the same as Christ's relationship to the church. Uh, that is a mystery. Christ loved the church enough to die for it. Uh, and so these are all mysteries. And in our passage today, uh, we're talking about yet another mystery. Paul revealed another of God's mysteries that God has caused a partial hardening to happen to Israel to allow the Gentiles to be included. And so what we see over and over is that God has a plan in this, uh, even in Israel's current rejection of the gospel. This influx of Gentiles is going to, in the future, work as a mechanism to bring the Gentiles back into the fold and to cause them to believe. So Paul informs them of this mystery uh, and he says very specifically here, if you look at verse 25, uh, that he wants them to know that it's a mystery uh, so that they will not be wise in their own estimation. And you'll remember that Paul is constantly trying to tell his Gentile readers not to be arrogant, not to be consumed uh, with themselves when they think about God's uh, grace to them. Uh, he gave them the illustration of the olive tree. Remember we talked about last week uh, that the root supports you. You do not support the root. Uh, so don't be arrogant. If you don't remain faithful, God will cut you off. Uh, so Paul revealed this mystery then as another reason not to be prideful. He's saying, look, don't you guys uh, get all full of yourselves and start thinking, well, uh, the Jews don't believe. Uh, they're out. We are God's chosen people now. And, and boy, God must really just be so pleased with us. Uh, God has a plan. God is sovereign over this. We don't do anything that merits our salvation. God has chosen us. And so we have nothing to be arrogant about. And so this is the mystery uh, that Paul has revealed. So the first thing we see is, is that it's mysterious. The second thing we see is that uh, God's hardening is temporary. And here, for the first time, Paul finally tells us how long uh, this hardening of Israel is going to last. Very generally speaking, of course, he says it's until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that means Israel's hardening will last until all the Gentile elect have been saved. So they've all come to faith. And then all Israel will be saved. Now, that's a difficult phrase. All Israel is a difficult phrase. We don't know if that means every single Jew or if it means Israel nationally, uh, as a whole, ethnically, religiously. It could mean every single Jew or it could be a figure of speech, um, which, uh, which means Israel as a whole. Uh, and in fact, all Israel is used that way many times in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, during 
uh, Absalom's rebellion against David. Uh, David comes into his house, uh, David's house, and, go, and goes on the uh, roof, and Absalom pitched a tent on the roof. And it says, uh, Absalom pitched a tent on the roof and went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, obviously, not all Israel saw Absalom go into his father's concubines. It's a figure of speech. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, what we have here, it, it's, it's kind of a metaphor. All Israel will be saved on the one hand. All Israel has rejected the gospel on the other hand. We know that some Jews are being saved, so maybe uh, it means that, that some Jews will not be saved in the future. It's hard to know. It's either all Israel, every single one, or all Israel as a metaphor for the great majority of Israel. Uh, but either way, it's going to be, a, 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 at a minimum, it's going to be a great number of Jews. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to understand that God preserves a remnant. There are Jews being saved today, and we can preach the gospel to Israel. But I do want us to recognize something. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to evangelize uh, with any, uh, any of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Some of them don't want to be evangelized. Some of them take offense to the fact that we evangelize them. Uh, they believe that because they have the covenant that God made with Abraham, that they don't have a need for Jesus. They think that the covenant that, a that God made with Abraham uh, gets them in. Uh, and if they're right, well, that goes down a dangerous road, doesn't it? Uh, if they're right, that means that there are two ways to be saved. Uh, there would be the way for the Jews who have the covenant of Abraham, and then there would be the way for the Gentiles who have the blood of Christ, uh, who died for our sins. And so uh, we can see that that might be problematic. Uh, now, I, I uh, read a lot of commentaries as I prepare for uh, our messages here on Sunday. And uh, one guy I particularly like is a guy by the name of John Stott. Uh, he's an old English uh, commentator and uh, from uh, the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s. Here's what he had to say about this idea of, of two different tracks of salvation. I'm just going to read uh, this longish quote because I think it's really good. He says, it is understandable that since the Holocaust, Jews have demanded an end to Christian activity among them, missionary activity, and that many Christians, in fact, have felt embarrassed about continuing it. Well, why would that be? Because supposedly uh, the Third Reich was Christian, uh, if you can imagine. Uh, so uh, it's even proposed that Jewish uh, evangelism is an unacceptable form of anti-Semitism. In other words, that it's uh, anti-Semite, anti-Jewish to preach the gospel to them because they have their own way of salvation. So that's the proposal. So, so some Christians and some Jews uh, have attempted to develop a theological basis for leaving the Jews alone in their Judaism, reminding us that God's covenant with Abraham was an everlasting covenant, they maintain that it is still in force, and that therefore God saves Jewish people through their own covenant without any necessity for them to believe in Jesus. This proposal is usually called two-covenant theology. Uh, there was a bishop by the name of Christar Stendhal who first made this uh, two-covenant theology popular, uh, and he said that there are two different salvation tracks, one for believing Gentiles and another for historical Israel that relies on God's covenant. Well, Stott says, Romans 11 stands in clear opposition to this because of its insistence that there is only one olive tree that we talked about last week, to which the Jews and Gentile believers both belong. 
Jewish people will be grafted in again if they do not persist in their unbelief. So I hope we recognize the problem. Uh, the reason that Jews don't think they need Jesus is because of their covenant with Abraham. And the reason that they believe that is not because they are right, but why? Because of verse 25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, Israel has experienced a partial hardening. Uh, this word for hardening means uh, dullness is another way, uh, another or synonym for that word. So that might, me, might seem very arrogant or, or insulting to our Jewish brethren, but it is what it is. God has said he has partially hardened Israel. He's given them a spirit of stupor, a spirit of dullness for a time. And at the same time, they have refused to believe the gospel. So they don't believe, and it's because, by and large, uh, they have this spiritual hardness, this spiritual dullness. But that does not mean that we as Gentiles do not have the responsibility to evangelize them. We can't worry that we might offend them if we preach the gospel to them. Uh, if we do that, that's like saying uh, we're not going to discipline our kids if they run into the middle of the street in busy traffic because they don't want to be disciplined, right? Uh, we do it because we love them. We do it because we know what's best for them. And we understand that if we, if we find that they uh, don't believe, well, they're going to uh, find themselves in hell, and, and we don't want that for them. Uh, if they don't hear the gospel from us, they may never hear the gospel and believe. Uh, and so we can't agree with our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, that they don't need the gospel. If we do, we surrender the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, all of our sins, and rose from the dead. Uh, Jesus, what he did on the cross is the completion of God's promises to the Jews. And so the Old Testament points to a Messiah who would save. And the New Testament reveals Jesus as that Messiah uh, and, that, uh, and stresses that faith in him is necessary for salvation. Guys, this thing isn't working. Just turn it off, all right? Um, the passage is clear uh, that all Israel has experienced a hardening, uh, a partial hardening, and this refers to Israel as a nation. Uh, some Jews are being saved now, but, but nationally, ethnically, uh, and religiously, Israel as a whole has rejected Jesus, and God's rejection of Israel is mysterious, uh, and it's temporary, but it's also purposeful. God has a purpose in this. Uh, God has set Israel aside for a time for a reason, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, but also for another reason, that the, that the Gentiles might make Israel jealous, and then they will be brought back in, and then all Israel will be saved. God will remove uh, the godlessness and the sins from the nation of Israel as he establishes his covenant with them when he regenerates Israel. So verses 26 and 27, they're quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, verse 26 quotes specifically Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9, and Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 to 21, uh, saying when Jesus comes from Zion, he will remove all ungodliness from Jacob, which of course is another word for Israel. So he's going to remove that godly, ungodliness and he's going to replace it with faith. And when he does that, that is going to be the fulfillment of the new covenant that God made with Israel uh, from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's 
the new covenant is a covenant that God made with Israel where he's going to take out the hearts of stone. It's also referenced in Ezekiel where he, he takes out the hearts of stone and puts in hearts of flesh. It says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares their Lord, the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the old covenant was the covenant with Moses, the law of Moses that they broke. Uh, and God promised a new covenant with Israel that they could not break because God himself would be the one to fulfill it. Uh, God will fulfill this covenant. He's going to do it sometime in the future when he causes Israel to believe the gospel and be saved. Now, we Gentiles are partakers of this new covenant. We get to share in the blessings of the new covenant. But God made this covenant with Israel, and he's going to fulfill that covenant to them. And we can be sure that God will fulfill the covenant to them because of what Paul says in verses 28 to 32. He says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these have also now been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also now be, may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So it is crucial that we have the proper view of Israel. There are two ways to look at Israel, right? And Paul sets them out here. Uh, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies, right? They are enemies, meaning they are hostile to the gospel. Uh, most of Israel is not saved, right? So in one sense, they are enemies of the gospel. Uh, but so were we once. We were once enemies of the gospel until God did an incredible work in our hearts and replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. God does this for a purpose. Uh, Paul says it's for your sake. He's writing to the, to the Gentile church in Rome, so he's writing to the Gentiles. It, it's for their sake that God has caused this partial hardening. And so we could look at Israel as enemies of the gospel, and in a sense they are because they don't believe. Uh, but there's another way to look at Israel, and that's God's way. God says about Israel uh, that they are God's choice. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, these are whom God has made his covenant with. And God has not stopped loving Israel just because he has set them aside for a time. God will fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham through the Jews. And that's because of verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And here is where we see the absolute certainty of God's fulfillment of his covenants. Now, do you know, brothers and sisters, that there are some things that not even God can do, right? 
And one of them is that God cannot go against his own nature. He cannot fail to fulfill his own promises. He cannot fail to fulfill his covenants. Uh, God is truth. His very nature is truth. And so we can trust his promises. They are surer than the fact that the sun will come up tomorrow. And so to be irrevocable means that not even God can violate his own character. Not even God can revoke his call or his covenants because to do so would be to violate his own character and God cannot do that. And of course, this is great news for our Jewish brothers and sisters. God has not and will not abandon them. That's also great news for you and me too, isn't it? Uh, that is great news for you and me, that, that God's calling and his gifts are irrevocable. You know that the only thing that secures our salvation, that secures our eternity, is God, right? It's not us. We don't secure our eternity. We don't keep our eternity. Uh, it's only the strength of God's character and the strength of his promises that keeps us in the fold that allows, uh, that, that requires him to honor his calling of us. Because if keeping of our salvation depended on us, well, we'd all lose it, wouldn't we? Because we continue to sin. Uh, we would fall out of covenant relationship with God. It's God's covenant. He binds us to it, and that's why our salvation is secure. And so because it depends on God, on his promises, on his power, true believers can never, never lose their salvation. God's gift, God's calling, it's irrevocable. Once saved, always saved. There is nothing we could ever do to lose our salvation. Uh, I have talked to Christians, and, and maybe you have too. Maybe you're among them sitting here thinking, you know, uh, I am, I'm caught in this sin. Uh, I've done something terrible. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not feeling as strongly about God as I used to. Is it possible that, that, that I don't believe anymore? Is it possible that I've lost my salvation? Well, the answer is absolutely not. If God has called you, his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Now, if you do decide at some point that you, you know, this, this is truly hogwash, I don't believe this, I don't believe it. It, it, it's not true. Well, that's not because God's covenant has failed. It's because you never actually did believe. It's because you've been pretending for a while and now you, have, you don't believe because God has never truly called you. If God has called you, uh, those gifts, that calling is irrevocable. And you may wanna know, well, how do I know the difference? Well, you know the difference because true faith perseveres to the end. Uh, if you fall, it's because you never believed. If you, have, if you believe, you will persevere to the end and you will produce fruit. Uh, those are the two things. You persevere, you produce fruit. And if you do those two things, you are God's forever. His calling and his promises are irrevocable. In verses 30 to 31, we were talking last week, remember, about this cycle, and we're going to see it again one more time. Israel doesn't believe, so the Gentiles come to believe, and then Israel will come to believe through jealousy of the Gentiles. We see it here again in verses 30 and 31. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these now also have been disobedient, so that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy." It's the fourth time now we've seen this cycle. Uh, and Paul is showing that, that, that God did an amazing work among the Gentiles uh, through Jewish unbelief. And he's going to do an amazing work in the Jews in the future through Gentile belief. Uh, so God's, 
has chosen Israel, uh, set them aside for a while, but for a specific purpose, uh, which is the salvation of the Gentiles. And then, then all Israel is going to come to believe. And so we see in verse 32 that God's mercy extends to all. Everybody receives God's mercy uh, who believes who God has chosen. Uh, when we looked at chapter 1, we saw that the Gentiles are condemned because of their sin. They're under sin. When we looked at chapter 2, in case the Jews be arrogant, God said, no, uh, you too are shut up under sin. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Uh, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all are lawbreakers, and none of us have a right to live in, uh, in heaven for all eternity. But, but God shows his mercy to us according to his wisdom and his timetable. And so for Israel, God chose Israel for a time they refused to believe uh, so that the Gentiles will believe, and then the Gentiles will cause Israel to believe. And so we see that God works in these mysterious ways. And Paul, after thinking about this, all of this theology uh, through uh, chapters 9 through 11, how God uh, planned for Israel, uh, elected them in the past, he foreknew them, but then in the present in chapter 10, how he is, uh, somehow Israel does not believe, but yet they will in the future. Uh, this plan has literally blown Paul's mind uh, so that he can do nothing in ch at the end of chapter 11 except to burst out into this doxology that he writes to conclude chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he, it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Wow. From verse 33. We see first that, that God, his mind is unknowable. Uh, Isaiah 55 says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and, and his ways are not our ways. So who else but God could, could ever devise such a plan? Who else has the wisdom and knowledge of God? Paul, Paul was just astounded as he considered it. And then verses 34 and 35, God doesn't receive wisdom or riches from us. Uh, who has known the mind of the Lord is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Uh, and who has preceded me that I should repay him is a quote from Job chapter 41, verse 11. Uh, Paul is, is constantly pulling out these quotes from the Old Testament just to show the wisdom and the majesty of God. Now, I don't know if any of you are, are caught up in, in, in watching The Chosen. Uh, anybody here watching The Chosen? Uh, this show is fantastic. Uh, this is a recreation of, of the Gospels. I strongly encourage you to watch it. It's, uh, it's not a hokey, uh, Christian-y kind of show. It's real earthy, a, a gritty, real Jesus, and I think you'll love it. Well, anyway, after um, Peter uh, is called by Jesus... Uh, now Peter, is, he, he's the man. He's like the right-hand man. He's, he's constantly in Jesus' face saying, here's what you need to do. Here's how we're going to come up with these effective strategies uh, so to effectively uh, uh, reach as many, as, people, uh, as many people as we can uh, efficiently. Uh, and Jesus is always like looking at him sideways uh, saying, uh, 
you know, uh, Peter, that's great, but I'm not on your timetable, and I, I don't necessarily do things the way uh, you would do them. So it's just a reminder that, that God doesn't take advice from men, does he? Uh, and, and we need to learn that in our own lives. You and I, uh, if you're anything like me anyway, uh, we're constantly telling God the best way to do things, you know, like, uh, God, th this is really how you ought to do it to get the best results. And, and uh, you know, for me to be truly effective, you need to pull this thorn out of my side, right? Uh, we, we always have this advice that we want to give God to have him to do things our way. Uh, but we just need to understand that, that we don't advise the Lord. He doesn't receive counsel from us. Uh, if we're wise, we will receive counsel from him uh, and follow it because that's the way things turn out the best. And, and that's true of riches also, right? Who is given to God that, that God would owe anything back to us? Uh, sometimes we do think that God owes us because of the good things that we've done, right? Uh, I should never get cancer. I should never get COVID because I volunteer at the children's hospital and I, I do this and I do that. It's not fair, right? Uh, we don't want to get ourselves caught up in that trap. Uh, we know that our good works are not what saves us. God's grace saves us. God does not owe us salvation, and he doesn't owe us a pain-free life. Jesus did not have a pain-free life, so why would we expect any different? Uh, we have God's grace by salvation, and whatever we get from God, he gives us by grace. So we don't stand in judgment over him. Uh, he stands in judgment over us. And then verse 36 all is for God's glory, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Let's just dissect that for a second. From him. The plan is from him. God's sovereignty. It's all of God. It comes from his own infinite mind. We, we couldn't devise such a plan uh, in a billion years. Uh, and all things are through him. Even if we could devise such a plan, we have no power to effectuate such a plan. Uh, we are sinners uh, forever trapped in our sin, but for uh, the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Only Jesus could satisfy God's wrath by his death on the cross. So all things are through him and all things are to him. God did all this from creation to the cross, to the future that he has planned, not only for Israel, but for the Gentiles on the new heaven and the new earth uh, for his glory and for the glory of Jesus Jesus will return and he will make all things new for God's glory. So Paul rightly ascribes all glory to God. To him be the glory forever. You know, this doxology, I mean, it should leave us breathless, right? We read it following the wisdom that we've read, not only in 9 to 11, but the whole gospel plan of salvation from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. And, and what, can we, what can we say? We can only stare uh, open-mouthed, right? Mouths open wide in wonder at the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. So what do we do in response to such things? There are really just a couple things we can do. The first thing is that we can worship, obviously, right? We worship this God who is so powerful and so loving. Um, God's fit, uh, plan is simply unfathomable to our finite brains. Uh, it extends from eternity past, which who can measure? Uh, and we know that because of his love and power, it will be fulfilled. And so there's nothing to do in the face of such power except to love God and to worship him. Uh, don't take him for granted. Just worship him with all your might. 
And another thing that we can do is pray. We have learned throughout chapters 9 through 11 uh, that God has a plan for Israel and he's going to redeem them someday on a national level. But still, today, individual Jews are being saved. And and if you know one or two or 10, uh, don't be afraid uh, to share the gospel with them. Uh, Just because God has set them aside doesn't mean that individuals can't be saved. They certainly can. So pray for them, speak to them. And also pray for ourselves, right? Uh, So that we will persevere in the faith. And finally, we can be humble. We need to praise God for our salvation. We need to not take any credit for it because it is not of our doing. We are sinners who are grafted into the olive tree. We are not God's gift to anyone else. Jesus is God's gift to us. So let's pray. Lord God, These are amazing chapters, these chapters 9 through 11, and and we just come before you, Lord, and we worship you for your amazing plan of salvation. It's because of this plan, Lord, that us Gentiles are able to be saved through the cross of Jesus Christ, and so we worship you for it, Lord, and we just pray that you will save our Jewish brothers and sisters, Lord. Uh, We pray for more of our own brothers and sisters, our family, and our friends to be saved, Lord. I pray that you will uh, do a mighty work through your Holy Spirit, Lord, and bring more and more to salvation. And Lord, we just humble ourselves before you, recognizing that it is your plan. And Lord, you're going to do it on your timetable. Lord, help us to be humble servants. Help us to uh, fulfill the great commission that you gave us to do, uh, to preach the word and to make disciples, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.